From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Air Force will get a new network backbone for its advanced battle management system. Silva's Technologies will build a mobile ad hoc network for the Air Force. FedScoop reports the ABMS system supports the Air Force's joint all-domain command and control system. The contract's worth up to $905 million. The Defense Information Systems Agency is moving forward on a contract for classified telephone and information services. The $87 million contract to Booz Allen Hamilton covers about 4,000 users with secret and top secret access. FCW reports DISA awarded the contract February 25th, but didn't make it public until last week. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a new bot to monitor personnel teleworking because of the pandemic. A CMS spokesperson tells NextGov senior leadership didn't have a singular location to track what the agency calls personnel accountability. The daily report includes how many people are teleworking, how many are on leave, and how many are connecting to the agency's network. Steve Linick is out as the Inspector General at the Department of State. He is one of four IGs out of a job in the last several weeks. Ambassador Ronald Newman is president of the American Academy of Diplomacy and a former ambassador to Afghanistan. Ron, thanks very much for coming on the program. You and a couple of your colleagues uh, are writing uh, about this removal of Ambassador, or excuse me, of General Linick. What's the big issue in your view here, sir? Uh First of all, we wrote on behalf of the American Academy of Diplomacy, an organization of about 300 former senior diplomats, uh, political appointees, as well as career officers. And our big points were that the IG function is just critical to good governance, and that there is a very specific statute on this, that when an IG is removed, it should be for real reasons. No real reasons have been given, a lot of words thrown around, and that this is a dangerous situation because it leaves the impression that you're only going to investigate things the administration doesn't like. We hope that's not the case, but the administration uh, has, should recognize that the burden of proof is on them. They're not standing up to that very well. Your uh, co-signers on this are uh, the chairman of the academy, Thomas Pickering, the vice chairman, Mark Grossman, and yourself. Um, in this, you write, uh, IGs must be independent, free to do their jobs without political or other pressure. Do you see political pressure specifically in the case of General Linick? Do you see it in more broadly in the uh, releases of the other inspectors general over the last several weeks, or maybe a combination of both, Ron? I suppose the fairest thing to say is that there is the impression of political pressure. Uh, there is no evidence because the administration has staunchly refused to explain its uh, reasons for removal. I think it's important to note that the specific law on uh, inspector generals says, first of all, the Secretary of State cannot, is prohibited by law from blocking or stopping or in any way interfering with an inspector, the inspector general. Secretary of State has gone around this since he can't do it himself and gotten the president to do it for him. Uh, 
it, it also says in the law that the president must provide the reasons for the removal. Now, he's provided a reason which says loss of confidence. The uh, Secretary Pompeo has given two other reasons that I saw in an uh, interview. He said that uh, that he was investigating, that his Linux was investigating policies he didn't like, and uh, that he was attempting to undermine the mission of the State Department. Now, that's, that's a lot of words, but it doesn't mean anything. So one of the things that's been charged in the news reporting, I don't know if it's true, was that uh, Linux was investigating whether it, the particular way that the administration did an arms sale to Saudi Arabia was legal. And there's a legal requirement they have to notify the Congress, which can block it, and they didn't do that. They justified it on a different basis. Now, if Linux was investigating whether they violated the law in that form of notification, then he may very well have been uh, investigating a policy he didn't like, and he certainly would have been investigating something that they saw as their mission. But the fact is, he's supposed to investigate if the law is violated. He's supposed to investigate if there's bad management, just as his predecessors did in previous administrations. And people have been forced out in uh, several administrations, Republican, Democrat. So the, these words the secretary is throwing around are absolutely meaningless unless the department or the president comes forward with some specifics about what Lenick was doing. In this letter, you list three key principles that you want to see happen next. The first is the reasoning behind the dismissal of General Linick, which we've already discussed, Ron. The second is the nomination of a permanent inspector general there. And the third is uh, the acting inspector general basically saying how he will conduct his role as the acting IG for the time that he's there. Have you seen anything on any of the other two, the last two that I listed, that give you any confidence that people are, are paying attention to this issue in the administration? Uh, no, none at all. Uh, I, I would say there is one thing that's made it a little worse, that Mr. Ackard, who's been named acting uh, inspector general, also continues to head a department, the Office of Foreign Missions, which received a rather bad inspection report. Uh, at this point, I don't know if he's even said he will recuse himself from that matter. So uh, he's now, you've now got the fox inspecting, inspecting himself while resident in the chicken coop. We have about uh, a little less than a minute left, Ron. A group of inspectors general wrote recently to overseers on Capitol Hill uh, calling for legislation that would establish five-year terms for inspectors general and would uh, require them to only be able to be dismissed for cause. Does that make sense to you, at least in the context of the office of the State Department inspector general? It's a start. But the basic problem is that inspectors general report to the Congress. If the Congress is not going to have the intestinal fortitude to back up its own law, then this law, like others, becomes fairly meaningless. And I've worked in a lot of countries where we dealt with dictators uh, and monarchs, and those countries generally ran on the principle that it was a crime to criticize the head of government or it was a crime to criticize policy. And the result in the end was a lot of things that were hidden and in the end, a lot of corruption as well. 
if we start running a country like that, then we're going to be running a lot like some of the places I've worked in my career overseas. Ron Newman, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Up next, a customer experience boost in the middle of the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what agencies need to do now to prepare for back to the office and a potential second wave. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The three pillars of the president's management agenda are behind the strategy of the Office of Management and Budget to provide citizen services during a pandemic. Federal CIO Suzette Kent said on Government Matters Sunday, the IT modernization piece of the PMA has given government leaders the headroom to move to nearly full telework and realize other IT benefits. To look at the extension of IT modernization, Lee Becker, Solutions Principal at Medallia, He's former chief of staff at the Veterans Experience Office at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Lee, thanks for coming on the program. The extension that I'm talking about of IT modernization is customer experience. What should leaders in government be doing now regarding customer experience, specifically as it applies to COVID-19, that they can turn into something usable after the virus is gone? Great question. And thank you so much for having me, uh, Francis. Uh, so. You know, with customer experience, what it does for for um, government, just like it does for industry, it provides the intelligence that's needed to really understand the changes of consumer behavior, to be able to really develop the processes, the policies, the technologies, just the same way as we're seeing in industry right now across um, over a thousand industries that I've been work that I've been uh, exposed with lately. They're all looking at the customer the employee, they're looking at that those experiences uh, to be able to, to to guide it. And so too, government agencies, federal, state, and local, have the opportunity to look at the their citizens, look at their employees, and be able to kind of from there, really understand those journeys, the personas, and be able to, frankly, help us address in this new normal, because everything is changing. So you hit on something there, Lee, that we've talked about when you've been on the program before when you're still at VA, and that is that every organization has two kinds of customers. They have their external customers, in the case of a federal agency, the citizens that they serve, and they have their internal customers, which are the employees that they need to continue to do a good job to serve those external customers. What, what do you think that your peers who are still in government should be thinking about now as they're thinking about serving their internal customers who may still be teleworking six weeks from now or two months from now, or maybe starting to come back to the office, or maybe a mix of both, and that mix of both may be generating some uncertainty and maybe even some, some chaos for some organizations. Absolutely. Uh, Francis, you know, it's when I see what has happened right now with COVID, and it's unprecedented in our lifetime, I see this very similar to prior wars and how we have, you know, addressed those wars and then post the wars, how do we, you know, address it from there? Just like in the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan, we saw an increase, for instance, around mental health, where the mental health needs for our troops, uh, the, the needs definitely increased. Why? Because as we think about the type of um, op tempo that's required to, to really respond in this war, it requires a tremendous op tempo. And as we've seen with our 
uh, tremendous public servants that have been working 14, 16 hour days uh, and been able to adapt and be flexible. It is the duty of leaders right now and in this time where we're, we have quote unquote lull until uh, the second wave to really assess and first up listen, develop uh, working groups, where we're bringing in our employees in to understand what those needs are and how do we heal them? How do we make sure that, you know, there are gaps, for instance, around training that we may need to be able to provide. There are opportunities where we uh, increase mental health support for those employees so they could uh, recover and frankly get ready for the next wave coming in. We've also been learning, um, and when I've talked to leaders across um, many different agencies, we have, this crisis has really shown how these employees can are flexible, how we've been able to adapt and be able to learn new things. How can we pull on that even more to be able to really double down so that we're even develop, putting this in place where we're sustaining it for the long haul? We have about a minute and a half left, Lee. The next wave that you've referenced a couple of times there is what I think people are starting to focus on now. People are thinking about how do I bring folks back to the office if I want to bring folks back to the office and how do I deal with whatever the ramifications are of the second wave? Since we don't know what that's going to look like, how hard it's going to hit, all of those kinds of things, how do you recommend that one prepares for that from a leadership perspective? Yes, the first thing is when I think about you know the UDA uh, loop mindset, the UDA is observe, orient, decide, and act. We have the opportunity right now to observe and to do that, we need to listen to the data. There's two pieces of data that we have to really be able to harness. One is the qualitative data. We have to be able to, what a novel concept, be able to take the time to ask our citizens, ask our customers. I mean, we look at the news. There's no time that's needed now more than ever to listen with empathy, pull the signals from, from our citizens and from our employees to be able to the processes, the policy that's that's needed. Because the second wave is coming and we need to be able to um, use that data to harden our processes so that we can uh, be able to respond um, with extreme urgency and flexibility with the next wave coming in. Lee Becker, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Likewise, Francis, thank you so much for all you do. Up next, cutting duplication, saving billions of dollars every year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, following the overlap, duplication, and fragmentation roadmap to success. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The Government Accountability Office says it could help agencies save tens of billions of dollars this year alone. Its new list of overlap, fragmentation and duplication has 168 potential actions for Congress and the executive branch. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. Richard, it's great to see you, my friend. When this list comes out every year, I know people like you and I go right to certain things in it. What do you tend to look at when this comes out every year, Richard? Well, yeah, it's probably not surprising to you that I look and see what they're talking about with the IT systems and, and issues with IT. 
Uh, but this year it's a little different. I mean, a lot of the focus is on on major programs. Um, you know, as an example, you know, the DOD working in the military depots and the fact that they could save billions of dollars by better managing uh, unfinished work within military depots as one example, or the government National Mortgage Association and how if they uh, were more effective and efficient that they could save uh, tens of millions of dollars. It strikes me that we're learning from the pandemic that all of the potential savings in modernization of IT systems that you and I have been talking about for, well, since you were DHS, what, eight, ten years ago. Um, yes. That's, that's mm -hmm. all manifesting itself now. We're seeing, Suzette Kent was on the program a couple of weeks ago saying the stuff that we did a year ago, the stuff we did 18 months ago, made it possible to do what we're doing today. That's the message you've been trying to get out there for 10 years. I guess it's gratifying and frustrating at the same time, Richard. I, I would, yes, of course. Uh, although I will say I've been pretty impressed with how agencies have stood up to this, uh, particularly in the virtual work environment. I think they've done a nice job overall in being able to respond. And, and to your point, I think some of the things that have been invested in, movement to the cloud, uh, ability to scale uh, more effectively through that, uh, has started to pay some real dividends. So overall, I'm, you know, I'm pretty pleased. I, I point out too that in this report, uh, you know, a couple of initiatives I was very involved with in, back in DHS, Data Center Consolidation Initiative. We've now saved, according to GAO, $4.2 billion over the last 10 years with that initiative. Um, and IT portfolio management, uh, which also started when I was at DHS, uh, savings of $3.3 billion. So there's some positive things happening on the IT front. When you see things, when someone sees things on the GAO overlap fragmentation duplication list in his or her purvey, what do you think steps one, two, and three are to say, not to get things off the list, because that's not the point of this. The point of this is to save taxpayers money or provide better service. How do you attack something like that when the number is big? Because my theory is that when the number's big, so's the problem, so's the challenge. Well, I don't think there's one answer to that question because it's so different. Some of the things are legislatively oriented. Some of the things, of course, are operationally oriented or IT oriented. Um, so I, I think the good news, and, and of course, this is GAO's reporting on themselves or a bit on, on what's happened is, if you were to go back over the last nine years of these reports, and this is the 10th uh, report, uh, there were 908 actions. And GAO says that uh, more than 50% of those actions have been completed. And the, the savings to the government, I should say savings, or financial benefit is in the order of $429 billion over that time. So that's quite substantial. And I give GAO a lot of credit here because I like this report a lot because it showcases all the things that can be done to eliminate uh, duplication and fragmentation um, in government. And, and I think it is a bit of a spur to action, just like the GAO high risk list as well. I think these two reports really go beyond just you know, very, very focused reports on one government agency, but highlight systemic issues across government that get the public's notice and get lawmakers' notice as well. So the completion of more than half of the items is impressive to me too. I think the other number that's similar to that that was impressive to me that Jessica Lucas-Judy from GAO pointed out when they rolled the list out was 
that agencies have at least started action on, I think the number's like three quarters of these. So it's obvious that agencies pay attention to the that's on this list. How do you go about prioritizing what's on this list to manage it up the chain, Richard, to take it to the deputy secretary and take it to the secretary and say, this is important, we need to work on this now? Yeah, I, I think that's, a, it's again, um, a question of both looking at how difficult it is, because some of these are very hard. I mean, another one that I was very involved with is the use of shared services. And, you know, this has been a holy grail for, for us in the IT area for decades now to, to get better use of shared services across the federal government. And I'd still say we're not doing nearly as well as we should be in that regard. Where some of the other things on the list um, you know, I have to give uh, DOD a lot of credit. I mean, in weapons systems acquisition reform, GAO estimates that they've saved $180 billion over the last decade. So I think it's a combination of taking the big, uh, the big ticket items, those that can really generate a lot of financial benefit, and looking at how difficult they are. Um, and, and that's how you go about the prioritization of these items. Um, but again, I, 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 unlike some of the past reports, I actually view this report as a little more positive than some of the I've read in the past, where it looks like we're making some real progress. And, and, that, and that's really good to see, uh, Francis. And, and I like to applaud uh, positive things in government when we see them. And I think this report and the amount of savings they've talked about over the last decade really showcases that. Richard Spires, thanks very much, my friend. It's great to see you. Always great to see you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.